Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus, and together we are the Minimalists. Welcome to episode number 42. Today we're going to talk about creating or creativity or craft or or what other words can we use here? I mean, we could even talk about passion or love yeah. or work. There, there are different there are different words that we use to describe what we do. And, and in fact, it's one of the questions we often ask people is, what do you do? And often that, that means, where do you work? But let's, let's flip it around today and let's talk about the creative process overall. First, uh, before we get started, some really exciting news. We're putting this podcast episode in your feed. It's like four or five days early because our documentary, which is called Minimalism, a documentary about the important things, a creation that we worked on for the last three years, it is finally available on Netflix just in time for the holiday season. So you can gather your friends and family and coworkers and enemies and pets and, and you know, bring them all around the, the glowing screen, whether that's your tablet or your phone or your TV, and you can watch our documentary our creation, and share that with your friends and family. It's, uh, it's coming out today, December 15th, 2016, on Netflix. If you enjoy it, we'd love a review from you. You can also let us know how you enjoyed the film on, on social media. It's interesting, Ryan. Uh, we, we are both 35 years old now. God, don't remind me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if I were to look back 10 years ago, our lives were different twice over mm. 10 years ago, yeah, right? We, we were both in the corporate world. We, we were in the middle of sort of climbing this corporate ladder. At, at age 25, I was a regional manager uh, in either Cincinnati or Dayton, depending on, on the time of year. And, and we both worked for this telecom company. You were working your way up the ladder as well. Had become a, You were a communications consultant, became a, a store manager. You were managing groups of people, and you were doing really well for yourself in terms of, of business, right, and, and, and status and success. Yeah, man, living the American dream. Yes, living, living this corporate American dream, right? Yes. And, and so it, what was interesting about that whole climb, it, I didn't realize it at the time, but we, we weren't doing anything that was very creative most of the time. Mm, I mean, mm-mm. we created spreadsheets, <laughs> but, but we weren't doing a whole lot of creative work. We were doing sometimes some meaningful work, and we were helping some people grow and, and you know, further their career and, and grow as human beings. We also encouraged people to contribute to the world, uh, maybe not as much as we could have, but, but uh, more, than, than, uh, uh, more than nothing for sure. But it's interesting because I look at my 25-year-old self, compare that to my 30-year-old self. Right around age 30, you and I both walked away from the corporate world. We sort of retired from, from that life. And, and my initial plan was to be a barista and write fiction. I'd always wanted – that was my creative outlet was writing. I always really enjoyed writing. But over the years, over the last five or six years – by the way, uh, yesterday from when this is airing, uh, December 14th, uh, the minimalists.com 
turned six years old. My God, time flies. Happy birthday to us. <laughs> and you know, I, was, I was looking at some old pictures from, from December 2010 when you and I had first started the website. And by the way, I was the one with the long hair then. You had the short hair. <laughs> um, how times have changed. Yeah. Um, but, but what's interesting about, about that is when we launched the minimalist.com, it was after I had simplified my life, almost a couple of years after I simplified my life, maybe you know, several months after you had simplified your life, uh, and, and it was just going to be a short-term creative outlet for us to talk about, hey, here's a story that really resonated with me, and I think it'll resonate with other people, and you came to me and said, hey, you know, Josh, you've been writing for a while, you write fiction, do you think you can do this nonfiction thing? And... I said, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it seems like it would translate, and, and most of it did. I mean, it, it's definitely a different type of writing for sure. But over the last six years now, six years, we've become a lot more vehicle agnostic. Uh, I, when it first started, w- w- uh, our friend Colin Wright recommended, that, hey, you should start a blog. And I'm like, what the hell is a blog? But in time, I'm like, okay, I wanted to write books. I just wanted to be an author. And authors write books, and books are the things I like to read, and that's what I want to write. That's all I want to do. It's very regimented, very strict. A, a book is 250 pages between bound covers, and that's what I want to create. Well, the truth is, you can also create via a blog, or mm. you can create via a podcast. You know, we're, we're now podcasting and I'm certainly better at writing than I am podcasting. There's no question about that. But you and I, over this past year, have gotten appreciably better at, at podcasting. Sitting down and, and rambling into a microphone is not easy, man. And you look at, at some of these people who have a daily radio show, and I'm like, how do you do it? How do you get on the air and talk for three hours a day? Like Ryan and I talk for an hour a week, and I'm constantly repeating myself and and we're constantly editing stuff out and, and figuring out what is going to add value. There's no way I could do it for three hours a day. It's a special kind of skill. But in time, you improve that skill, just like with blogging. Mm-hmm. I wasn't familiar with blogging when we first started blogging. I didn't know what a blog was. And and uh, when we first started doing it, I we, we even called them essays. Like we started writing essays and putting them up online, starting with your 21-day journey, your packing party, and our whole journey into minimalism. And, and so we started writing about this and creating something that the world started finding value in. But from there, we wrote books. You know, we, we've published three books we, in, in 2011, so a year after, almost a year exactly after we started our, our website, we published a book called Minimalism, Live a Meaningful Life. And, and it was really about the five values of, of living more meaningfully and, and a, a more purpose-driven life. And here's the values we uncovered after getting rid of our stuff. And then we moved out to Montana in, in uh, 2012 and started writing Everything That Remains, the memoir that, that we published in 2014. And we went on the road with that, which was another way to create, was getting in front of these, these live audiences. We had done that before. We, we did a couple small tours with our first book. And, and we got out in front of people. And we started creating in this way, creating a, an environment of communication and expression. And... When we published our, our memoir, Everything That Remains, it was a way for us to communicate a story, not, not a sort of how-to book, but here's the why-to. What's the why behind, the, the, what's the reason that we, we embarked on this journey? 
And then uh, last year, we, we published an essay collection, which was, a, you know, we'd, uh, over the last six years, we've written about 600 essays at TheMinimalists.com, which people can read for free. But we wanted to go back and edit those and collect them in a way that was, was you know, 12 different chapters on 12 different subjects and present that to the world in a different way. And so those are all different vehicles, but we also have audiobooks. Those are creative vehicles. And, and we, we have... Um, Social media can also be a creative vehicle. It can also be a hindrance. It can get in our way. And I think a lot of people focus too hard on social media when it can augment the experience. But there, we all know someone who does social media really well. They're like funny, especially comedians, have these one little one-liners or whatever. And, and social media makes sense as the ideal platform for them. Or we have a documentary now, and we're working on all this other stuff to that, that – are just different vehicles to create in the world. So do I still think of myself as an author? Well, maybe. I, I like to write. I'm really passionate about writing. I, I prefer that verb over the noun. And so today when we're talking about creativity, let's think a lot more about the verb creating as opposed to like what am I as a person? Am I a podcaster? Am I an author? Am I a film producer? No, I mean, these are things I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about getting this message out in front of people, and we found different vehicles to do that. It's also important to note that we didn't just say, well, here are the 15 things we want to start doing. No, we, we started with a blog, and then eventually as that, that picked up steam, we wrote a book, and then we wrote another book, and in time we started making a film, or we went on tour, but these are all one thing that happened after another. And, and so... I really want to think about different vehicles. You hear us t today talk about writing, and I know some people have some questions about writing, and, and that's important. And that's one easy vehicle with which you can create. But it's also not the only vehicle. And by the way, within writing, there are many sub-vehicles, right? That I just mentioned several, whether it's books or blogs or social media or poetry or, or um, you can do uh, spoken word. I mean, you and I have given a several TEDx talks and those have been really popular that have resonated with people. But you didn't just get up there and start talking extemporaneously. We, we wrote that out and we, we practice and practice. That's a form of writing. But it's mm. also a vehicle for, for communication. So when we are, are talking today, I, I hope that we can, can convey that creati creativity or creating is truly a, a verb and the, the nouns associated with that, they can help us identify the path we want to go down, but ultimately it's about the task, the act of creating in and of itself. Our first question today is from Ginny in Columbus, Ohio. I really like all the content um, you make on Instagram and on your blog and on the podcast, and I have a question regarding that. Um, what I really appreciate is that you really think about the value you bring to your audience in making your content. However, how much do you um, think about, you know, the value of the content while making it or uh, when you decide to make it versus um, just going, heck, you know, I'm going to write this because this is what I you know, feel like, and I don't really need the validation. Jenny, it's a great question because, you know, I think a lot of the times uh, people, when they write, especially for a blog, they think about the audience. And I'll tell you, when I think about the audience, if, if that is the, the main reason why I'm writing, 
then I start to water down uh, what I was originally intending to write. Because when you think about you know millions of people reading what you write and you start thinking about millions of different opinions, mm. well, then what you write starts to become... Well, just kind of like stagnant, right? Because mm-hmm. you're trying to like please everyone. So vanilla, yeah. So for me, Jenny, like I, I start, I do start to write for myself, and I do ask the question: Is this, you know, does this add value? Is this essay or is this book or whatever? Is it going to add value? Uh, but I usually do that during the editing process. So I start with writing for myself and and getting everything out there that I can. And then, yeah, sometimes I'll read through an essay and I'm like, wow, this is a really nice, nice essay and I enjoy it, but I'm not sure this is going to add much value. And that's okay. I'm okay with that. Uh, but, but yes, I uh, start, start with the, the latter of, of, of your question. And, and then from there, I will decide whether or not, um, you know, what's going to add value or not to our, our readers. I think it's interesting, Ryan, you, you mentioned like uh, uh, stagnant or, or, or I use that term vanilla, like, cause ultimately if you're create, if you're creating something that you try, I'm trying to appeal to everyone. You have to create the most bland flavor of vanilla because it, it, you're trying to appeal to everyone. Right. And you very rarely meet someone who says, man, my favorite ice cream, it's vanilla ice cream. But if you put a bowl of vanilla ice cream in front of them, they're probably going to eat it. They're probably going to eat it. Yeah, absolutely. And so uh, I I don't want what I do to be vanilla. I want it to reach a large amount of people and influence them in a positive way. But in in order to do that, I know that I'm also going to have to make something that is not going to be for everyone, right, when when we're creating. And so, Ginny, I I really looked at what you were were asking as two questions. How much do you think about the the value of the content? And then also, how do you break through the the noise of the internet and reach an audience? So let's start with that first one. Uh, How much do you think about the value of the content? I think content is king, but what do I mean by that? I really mean value is king because uh, uh, the, the second part of that is I would say I focus on creations over content. I think content is part of the problem in our culture today. People are trying to be content creators. I, I just got to create more content. Well, what the hell does that mean? Uh, uh, content is nebulous, right? Uh, but, but, but creation, when you think about a a uh, thing that you've created, whether it's uh, in the virtual world or the physical world, if, if you're creating widgets, you know, you're creating art, you're doing something creative, uh, a creation is basically a product that adds value or a, 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 a product that adds to the greater good, right? It helps, a, it helps you grow as the creator, but it also adds value to the world, as Ryan was mentioning. So that's really what a good creation is. Content can be nebulous. It could just be uh, attempting to aggregate more eyeballs onto your blog. And that's really the wrong outcome, don't you think? I mean, if you're just trying to get more people to look at you, then yeah. you have to start doing, you know, we, we've talked about this before with the, the uh, please masturbate in your own room kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you can get people to watch you by doing something salacious. You can go into a, a, a crowded theater and yell, fire, and everyone's going to pay attention to you. But if you're the little boy who cries wolf or the cries fire in this case, eventually they're going to stop paying attention. It's like a car accident. Mm. If you see a car accident, you're going to turn your head and look at it. I mean, it's human nature to, to look at that. But but once a car once you've gotten past it, you're generally not thinking about that in the future. So you're not establishing a really a relationship with a with a readership or, or an audience or or listeners or whatever your your vehicle may be. And and I think that's important to to realize. So when when I, I look at my creations and Ryan, I think this is kind of what you were getting at. It, it is I not I'm not writing just for myself, obviously. Mm-hmm. 
there are two reasons that I write or two reasons I create uh, more broadly. One is to communicate and one is to express myself, right? So, so, so I want to express myself, but if you're just completely expressive, that's like journaling. Like I've got this notebook here in front of me and I could write in it <laughs> and unless someone stole it and read it, it could just be my own expression, right? It's my own journal entry, so to speak. It's not meant to be communicative. Uh, the example that I like to use with this in my writing class that I have is I, I talk about, you, we've all seen, if you've been on a subway, you, you've seen like the Tourettec person on a, a bus or a subway car who's kind of just yelling at a wall and it's kind of sad at first, but, but that's what we're doing if we're just shouting in, in a room somewhere. Yeah, that person expressing. is creating plenty of content. Yes, exactly. That, that, that's exactly it. They are creating content for sure. But that content doesn't require an audience at all, right? right? It will gain an audience at some point, but it's not serving the greater good, really. Uh, but the other side of that is communication. Like, I also want to communicate, and that does require an audience. Mm. So do I think about my audience? Uh, yes and, and, and no. Yes, I want to create for an ideal audience member, but generally that, that audience member looks rather suspiciously like me or you, Ryan. Mm. Now, I don't mean... 35-year-old white guys from the Midwest because our audience doesn't look like that. But when I say they look like me, they think like we do. They're open-minded. They're inquisitive. They're asking questions. They might have radically different personalities like you and I do, but they're looking for these similar values. And, and we approach that through the lens of letting go and through minimalism. But we get to these same values of health and relationships and passion and growth and contribution, and, and we get there because we're able to communicate to those people. And so am I thinking about an audience? Yes, I'm thinking about a person who looks rather similar to me. How would I communicate to me? Mm. How would, would I be able to communicate to my younger self maybe or to my older self even in some instances? And, and, and so uh, because I can't know how everyone else thinks, but I can know how I think. And so... I want to communicate with that person, but I also want to express myself. That's what makes your work unique. Because if you're just communicating, you're writing what is the equivalent of a math textbook, there's nothing unique about that, really. The expression, uh, your, your own bent on the subject is what makes the, the communication unique. So why, why do I write? I write to communicate, but I also write to express myself in, in, in a meaningful way. And the second part of your question, Jenny, was uh, how do you break through the noise of the Internet and, and reach an audience? Well, I, I don't know if that's the right question to be asking, uh, especially if you're looking at, for more clicks or to, like I said, aggregate eyeballs onto your blog or to your podcast or whatever. It's interesting because I spent most, most of my 20s writing fiction, as Ryan knows, and, and unbeknownst to me, a lot of it was kind of bad fiction. But I, the only people who read that fiction, because I was, shared, I was scared to share it with my, my friends and, and, and coworkers, because you weren't supposed to be creative in that, in that world, right? That world of, of corporate America. Like, like you're, oh, you're spending time outside of work on something creative? It was almost looked down upon, not directly, but you know, people would kind of roll their eyes kind of thing. And, and so the only people who read my stuff were these agents and publishers, who told me no. They'd send me rejection letters. I have a whole stack of rejection, rejection letters that I'd like to publish someday. And, and you know what? Uh, I, I found that I, got, I developed a thicker skin because people were telling me no, 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 no. And then six years ago this week, Ryan and I started TheMinimalists.com. And about a month in, we figured out how to track the traffic. And, and at the end of that month, we figured out that it was 52 people who had visited our website once we figured out how to track this. 52 people. And, and that is totally unremarkable to most people. But to, to me and to Ryan, 
it was really meaningful because especially for me, the only people who had read my stuff had told me no. And now someone was finally telling me yes because that 52 in time, it turned into 500 and then 5,000. And we have 4.7 million readers at theminimalists.com now. And we've had hundreds of people who have watched our, our film or our TEDx talk or listened to our podcast. So almost a million of you listen to the podcast. And so uh, what I've learned is that the way that you break through that noise is to not add to the noise, right? Mm-hmm. Over half a decade ago, when, when Ryan and I started this, this blog, we we didn't intend to earn a full time living, and, and 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 we certainly didn't intend to you know, have four point seven million listeners or, or readers or whatever as an audience. Like that would have been the wrong goal. The goal, the objective at the time was how do, can I add value to at least some people? And so when fifty two people showed up, that was the most amazing feeling in the world for me. And it's not scalable. You, you don't say, well, now 520 people are showing up. I feel 10 times happier. Like Ryan, you have, I don't know how many Twitter followers you have. Right. Uh, let's say you have 20,000 personal Twitter followers. Are you twice as happy now than when you had 10,000 <laughs> Twitter followers? I wish it worked that way, but Or no, 20,000 times more happier? Yeah, no, of course not. No, you know, it's funny, like every time someone comes up to us uh, at one of our events, you know, whether it's, you know, with the documentary or if it's book reading or whatever, they come up to us and they'll say, wow, you've changed my life. Like, thank you so much. And that feels the same to me every single time. It's like mm-hmm. I could have one person say that or a million people say that. And at the end of the day, uh, yeah, you're right. Like the number doesn't matter. It's just a number. Right. Yeah. And I think that's the, the only number that's worth tracking is that is the number one, the one person Amen. that you influence at a time. Yeah. Because here's the truth about it. I can say 4.7 million, and that sounds impressive, especially when you think about like putting all those. That's like, I don't know, the size of, you know, it's bigger than most states in the United States. But the truth is, the vast majority of those people, they're not getting commensurate value as the person whose life was changed, right? There's someone who, who, who had this life changing experience. I, I was in Dayton just two days ago, and someone came up to me in a coffee shop and said, Hey, I know you don't have a lot of time. I'm sorry to bother you. Which, by the way, if you ever see me in person, you're not bothering me. Thank you for being so kind. But, but someone came and said, she said, I, I just started college at Wright State, and what you've done has absolutely changed my life. It has, it has removed the anxiety, this, the level of anxiety that I had, and, mm. and it's made me a better person. Wow. And to me, that, that's so much more impressive in, in an internal way, not impressive like I'm not trying to impress you. What I want to do with the audience here who's listening is I want to impress upon you the, the fact that, that helping someone else out, the, the, the feeling isn't scalable. So, so those 52 readers, yeah, they turned into to, to more readers over time, but why? How does something go viral? Well, the truth is Ryan and I haven't had anything that's like truly gone viral uh, you know, you hear this with songs all the time. And I, by the way, I've had this damn song stuck in my head for the last two days. Do you know this Black Beatles song? No. Oh, my goodness. So it's like, do you know about the Mannequin Challenge? Yes. Okay, so, so you're not a total mountain man. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I watch the internet. <laughs> I see it on my TV. Um, no, I, uh, the, this Mannequin Challenge, there's a song called Black Beatles, and it's like, it's a creation, right? Someone had created something, and it is, it is a truly catchy song. I mean, it, and it has, I, I, 
been going to sleep with it in my head. I've been waking up with it in my head. Mm. It is it's one of those just sort of infectious songs. Yeah. And so why did that why did that go viral? Uh, because Ryan and I have never had any, I'm kind of proud to say we've never had anything that's truly gone viral. We've had things that have been very popular. Uh, Ryan's TEDx talk is a great example. Several million people have seen that, but it's not like several million people saw it in two days. And I'm sure if you pull up the, the Black Beatles song on YouTube, it's probably several hundred million people have, have seen that thing, which is just unbelievable to me. But, but the reason something goes popular or goes viral is what? Well, whenever you... I, I should talk about myself. If I have an article, if I read a Seth Godin blog post I really love, like I did this past weekend, I sent to you and, and podcast Sean here. Um, I find something that adds value to my life, whether it's a book or a movie or, or an um, a article, blog post, a song, whatever it might be. My first inclination is to share it with people I care about, hoping they will get a similar amount of value that I got out of that thing. And so the way that 52 people turned into to 500 wasn't because we were shouting in a room. It wasn't because we had created a car accident that everyone wanted to gawk at. It was because a few people, a select few people, found value in what we did, and they started to share it with their friends and family on Facebook or, or Twitter or MySpace or whatever the thing was at the time. And, and when, in fact, I think our most powerful social media button, Ryan, is that we have a little button at the bottom of each of our essays that just says, forward this to a friend. Mm -hmm. Because that means a lot more. If I send you an essay and say, hey, man, I really found value in this. I think this will resonate with you. I'm more apt to read it than if I just see it in a Twitter feed somewhere. And so I think keep that in mind. How do you get past the noise? Don't create the noise, right? If you create something that's worth reading or listening to or watching, it gets through the noise because all you have to do is whisper, and people want to listen. They want to hear what you have to say. Um, I will also, last thing, tell you this, Jenny. Uh, we have a couple chapters in our book, Essential, which is an essay collection of 150 essays that, that Ryan and I wrote. There's a chapter on priorities, and there's a chapter on passion in there. And for me, when I, when I talk about passion, I think passion is, is one half love and one half healthy obsession borderline unhealthy sometimes, and I think that's okay. And so we, we really talk about priorities and passion in that book. There are two separate chapters. We'll send you either the print or ebook version of that, or it just came out as a brand new audiobook. Sean, I don't know if we have any audible downloads left, but if we do, uh, let's send one of those to Jenny. Uh, for anyone else who's interested, you can find that on Audible or iTunes or Amazon. Our next question is from Keisha in South Carolina. I am a new blogger. I'm also a veteran. Um, I am working on an eatery blog as well as a self-help blog as well as a travel blog. Um, I'm 100% disabled, so blogging is all I do as of now. I just want to know the black and white of what I need to do to be more successful. Um I've had the blog for about two months now. I know it's a slow process, but I am not getting any feedback whatsoever. I get more feedback on Twitter uh, with the inspirational quotes that I post than I do on my blog. Keisha, so how, how do you be a successful blogger is, is, is the question. You know, first and foremost, you've got to add value, right? I mean, if, if you don't add value, then why are people going to want to read your, your thing? So if you're adding value, Keisha, great. That is a great first step. The second step, be consistent. 
Like, I cannot express how important this is. It doesn't matter how many times you post an essay, whether it's once a month, whether it's once a day. Just be consistent. People have to know what to expect, right? They want to know when there's going to be new content. And oh, by the way, they want to make sure that the content that you have on your website is consistent. They're, they're not going to want to go to uh, the minimal, you know, people aren't going to come to the minimalist.com and read about uh, here's our top 10 favorite, uh, you know, movies. And then the next essay is how to declutter your closet. Uh, which we would never really write how to declutter <laughs> your closet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but 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 my point is is like you come to the minimalist.com, you know what you're gonna get. Every single essay, you know exactly what you're going to get from us. Third, always put your best foot forward. Never, mm. ever, ever, ever compromise quality for quantity. Yes. Uh, going back to what we were talking about uh, with content earlier, uh, producing content for the sake of content, that is not quality. That is quantity. And we feel pressure to do that right? in today's world. You yeah. See, I mean, I tell you, me, uh, we were at a, co- a conference last year, uh, Misfit, oh, yeah. and uh, that, that gal, Tara, she gave a talk, and she said, Seth Godin is my Beyonce. And I went up <laughs> to her afterward and said, Seth Godin is also my Beyonce. Yeah, man. You know, because he publishes something every day. It's unique. It's great. It's oh, consistent. Yes. It adds value. Yes. Yeah, it's amazing. I couldn't agree with you more, man. But just because he can do it doesn't mean you have to do that. Right, 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 right. Yeah, go at your own pace. Uh, I would say fourth, um, be unique. You know, uh, theminimalists.com, I think one of the main reasons why it is so popular and the reason why, you know, it kind of took off there in the first couple years is because, you know, Josh and I had a perspective that wasn't being uh, propagated uh, on, you know, in the minimalist sphere, I guess. I mean, there were a lot of people out there sharing the recipes, but the recipe that Josh and I had, no one else was sharing that recipe. So try to be unique. And then, you know, the last piece of advice I, I, would, I would give you, Keisha, is focus on one thing at a time. Mm. I got to tell you, man, like think of me thinking about running three different blogs, like one blog <laughs> is enough to like drive me crazy sometimes, uh-huh. like let alone trying to keep up with three blogs with not just creating content, uh-huh. but meaningful content that adds value for yes. three different blogs. Like that would really stress me out. Now, Keisha, I'm not saying that that's not possible. It right. certainly is possible, even plausible. Uh, but be honest with yourself. Is this too much at once? Uh, if I was you, um, you know, my, my biggest recommendation out of all this advice would be to pick one thing, choose the thing that you love the most, that you're passionate about the most, and develop that and, and, and go from there. Yeah, Keisha, first off, uh, thank you for your service and, and for what you've done for our country. Really, really appreciate that. And I, I'm just going to echo, echo everything Ryan said here. Uh, totally agree that, that well, going back to the point of, of Ryan and I, you know, we, we had a guy call in uh, a few episodes ago and he's like, how do you manage this minimalist empire of books and blogs and, and movies and, and, and you know, YouTube and, and social media and all of these things? And the truth is it was building one thing on another. So it's not to say you can't do three blogs. It's just you probably can't do three as well as you can do one at a time. Right. Josh and I didn't start with, hey, here's our three book ideas that we want to do. Oh, my god. Here's the documentary that we want to do. Don't oh. forget about that writing class, and I want to do that mentoring thing, and let's work <laughs> on all this at once from day one. <sighs> uh, that would have been impossible. We would have failed miserably if we, if we took that approach. I think so. And, and, and here's the other cool thing. 
thing about failure, though. It is, it's okay to fail sometimes. I mean, we, Ryan and I fail all the time on these little things. We don't even look at them as failures anymore. We just look, them at, look at them as lessons. Like, yeah. Usually it's like, uh, our failures are, that didn't go very well. Well, I learned something new for next time. It, our documentary is a great example for this, and I'm not going to go into specifics because I, I don't want to badmouth anyone. But this whole process, you learn a lot about Hollywood, and you learn a lot about distribution, and you learn that, you know what? Uh, it's it's there are a lot of hands in the cookie jar, mm. and, and though even though a, a thing that you've worked really hard on reaches a lot of people, uh, it it becomes a lot more difficult when a lot of people are are you know trying to to uh, dip their influence into the picture. Think about when we were on tour in 2014, mm. dude. How many lessons did we learn? I mean, how many times did we fail? Like oh when we would goodness. show up. Remember we showed up in Indianapolis. <laughs> it was raining outside. There were probably like 500 people there waiting for us, five yes. or 600 people. The room that we had at the bookstore was in this like damp basement. It held 60 people. Yeah. How ma- 60 people cramped. Do you remember how many people were so angry at us? Yes. For, and it's like... And we didn't have anyone with us helping us. It was just the Josh and Ryan show. Yeah, man. So uh, we ended up doing like a doubleheader. And like luckily, um, the guy across the street like had a venue... Like that, an empty theater. Yeah, that he let uh, the, the owner of this bookshop use. But people waited out in the rain. But, you know, that's just one one lesson that we learned. And it's like, yeah, if we were to go back on tour uh, again uh, for 100 cities, right. uh, which <laughs> we may do one day. I mean, we don't have plans to do that in the future. But if we did, I mean, just think about how much more of a quality experience that would be because we learned from all of those failures. Totally. In fact, our tour this year, so we, we went out on 15 different cities with the, the documentary. And it was it was based on a lot of the failures that we had on the 100 city tour, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we, we brought those failures forward and said, okay, I'm not going to do that again. But guess what? We still did stuff wrong. There's always going to be something that we can improve upon. And a lot of failures there. And, and learning from those is important. Now, Keisha, you asked um, about, you know, how do I be a successful blogger? How, I, I think first off, we have to question, how are you defining success, right? Mm. Is it the number of people who read your stuff? Uh, because there are a lot of you know cat bloggers who have a lot of people who read their stuff. If we're comparing numbers, I mean, there are plenty of YouTube videos that that have more eyeballs on them today than I'll ever reach in my entire lifetime. And so, if we just compare numbers, we're going to fail there. Or how else are you are you are you identifying success? Is it based on feedback? If it's you know, people on Twitter or your close friends or whatever, that can be a measure of, of success. But we have to be careful about what feedback we bring into our lives versus just overall criticism. We did a whole episode on, on criticism. You can go back and listen to that. How else are you defining success? Money? Does money make you successful? No, it doesn't. And I'll tell you why. When I walked away from the corporate world, I was making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. The first year I walked away, I made $23,000 that year. I was wildly more successful, orders of magnitude more successful making $23,000 than I was at you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. Now, that's not to say that there's anything wrong with money or extra clicks or getting good feedback. The question is, why, why am I doing what I'm doing? And, and I don't want to be motivated by money. I don't want that to be the outcome. If I make money off of something I do, that's great. And, and in fact, I would encourage people to 
not just give away everything for free. If you are creating value for other people's lives, you can give away most of your stuff for free, but it's okay to make a living off of your creations. If you're proud of something you do, don't feel bad about making a living off of that thing that you worked really hard on, right? Uh, uh, but also, let's look, let's look at reframing. What is your, what's your idea of success? For, for me, it really involves two or three things. One, am I growing as an individual? Two, am I contributing to the world? Three, am I passionate about this? It, it's funny, Ryan. I, went, I was back in Dayton, Ohio, and I was driving around, and I saw some of the old retail stores we were managing. I kind of did a little milk run. Of, of, this is what we used to call back in the day where we'd, like, bring a boss around to all of our stores. And you know, one of the vice presidents or, or you know, the CEO or something, we'd bring, bring – One of the big wigs. Yeah, we'd bring one of the, the, the big wigs around to the store. We'd do a milk run. And I kind of did the same thing. Now, first off, I uh, – total side, uh, side note here. Man, my physiology changed. I was at, at our York Common store. Uh, our friend Stan, who is, has passed away, um, one of my best friends in the world, he managed a couple stores, and one was in North Dayton. And I pulled up to that place uh, on my way back to the airport, and it was like my heart started beating faster. I was right back there. Like, it was like wow. the last six years hadn't happened. Wow. I was prepared to go in there and see Alex and Matt and – and Stan and and, uh, and and just see this group of people like I was so used to, like it was burned into my brain wow, basically I have not done that I'm, you know hearing that makes me want to not do that when I when I go back to Ohio but I have not actually been to any of those retail stores it was since. a very useful uh, it was a useful experience for yeah. me it helped me actually untether from it honestly it was wow. almost therapeutic in fact I went to one of your stores uh, Fairfield Commons Mall oh my god I just walked in there by the way that mall has turned into it's gotta look a like flea market, market. yeah, yeah. But the the store that you manage there, yeah. with all the real, I mean, we a long time ago spent several hundred thousand dollars on the store build out of that place, and you know, remember all the same fixtures and the cabinet, they're all still there. No way. And but six years later, yeah, wow. yeah and the, they were probably made five or eight years before that, so they've been there. I don't know, fifteen, seventeen years or something. I don't know. But anyway. Um, I was in there, and it's like a body piercing store now, with all the same with all fixtures, the same, fixtures. The same carpet, the same TV was on the wall. My God, the direct TV, TV. Oh my so, God. So, so we, we were. I went in there, and like I started like feeling the same physiology, and and it's interesting because uh, when people ask like, is there anything you miss from the old cor- corporate world? My answer, my honest answer, tends to be no, because I was able to pull everything I that I really enjoyed forward. There was one thing, though. Like, I was really into demographics and understanding communities. And so I opened a lot of retail stores. And in, in my time there, I had opened uh, either temporary or permanent stores, upwards of 25 different stores, uh, everything from uh, over-million-dollar stores to really small kiosks and, and sort of everything in between. And I was really passionate about that. I, I, I enjoyed doing that. And so that was one thing I was passionate about, I, and, and I realized while I was back there doing this milk run is that was the, the only creative side of what I was doing, was finding ways to create a hub within a community. And so we'd go to weird places like Greenville or Eaton or Wilmington, Ohio, all these places I looked at opening stores potentially, and that was the creative process for me. And so, and this is a very circuitous answer for, for Keisha, but what I'm really talking about here is... What are you passionate about? Because mm. you talked about these these three blog ideas, and and yes, it's important to to want to be able to branch out and have some variety. But Keisha, I wrote I wrote down twelve tips for you, <laughs> so hopefully I'll get through a few of these. Uh, buckle up, 
Uh, I'll, I'll try to su- summarize them as quickly as possible. If you're creating a blog or a podcast or a book or whatever, the first tip that I have for you is find your niche. Or as our friend Colin would say, find your niche. <laughs> so find your niche. Uh, basically, your niche is your starting point. It is not your destination. Uh, sometimes people worry that if they pick a topic to write about, they'll run out of material. Or, or worse, they, they will pigeonhole themselves and be unable to, to broaden uh, their topics. And I say that's not true, right? For example, Ryan and I, we ostensibly write about what? Minimalism, right? We write about minimalism on our blog. But in, in reality, we, we write about intentional living, right? And, and that's a much larger uh, umbrella than, than just minimalism. And that larger umbrella allows us to write about various topics, uh, which I'll cover in, in number three below. But um, uh, in addition to, to simple living, we, we write about a whole bunch of other stuff, basically. So you may want to consider a niche that uh, is specific enough that you have a starting point, but broad enough that you're able to write about more than one thing. So if you write a blog that is barefootrunningwomen.com, I'm sure that's already a website, it's going to be maybe too specific. It's not saying you can't do that, but for me, I found personally I wanted to be a bit broader than that. Uh, Number two, what's your tagline? Which sounds kind of weird at first, right? Like, now we're talking about marketing already? Well, sort of, but not really. Uh, So once you have a niche, you want to define what's your your blog or your podcast or your book or your movie's mission. In other words, What's the first impression of the thing that you're creating, right? And you want to be able to communicate that mission or your vision or whatever you want to call it. You want to be able to communicate that in one or two sentences. So, so for example, the, the tagline for the minimalists is Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus write about living a meaningful life with less. That's our tagline. It's our mission. It's what we do. You can sum it up in one sentence, right? Anyone can read that and know exactly what our blog is about. Yeah, it goes back to what you were saying. What are you getting yourself into, right? And and you know what what to expect when you show up, right? And so your tagline allows you to define your your creation's overarching purpose, right? Uh, Number three, what are your five main topics? So so once you have a mission for for what you're creating, your book or your blog or your podcast or whatever, you'll want to outline the paths by which you can bring your audience to that mission, right? And so the best way to do this is to select five topics under which all your your writing or creating will fall. Uh, For example, when I'm writing about, quote, intentional living, that's our niche, right? Uh, we're generally, Ryan and I are generally focused on the five main areas of, quote, living a meaningful life, which is our tagline or our mission. And so those five areas for us are health, relationships, creativity, or, or you might call it passion, growth, and contribution, right? And so often you'll see our, our essays online that they focus on more than one of these at a time. And, and, but we're almost always focused on at least one at least one of these five areas. And it allows us to bounce around a lot and still write, a lot of, uh, write a, about a lot under the guise of writing about minimalism. Uh, number four, uh, the, put your audience first. And, and here's what I mean by, by that. We already talked about communication and, and expression, but your blog isn't just a, a journal. It's not just a weblog, right? It's, it's a missive to the world. You're sort of writing a letter to the world. And so you want to keep your audience in, in mind by asking these questions, right? Who is this for? So again, we're not, it's not thinking about a broad, the broadest possible audience. The broadest possible audience is 7 billion people and it doesn't exist, 
right? So who is this for? What do I want to communicate? What am I attempting to express? And I think most important, and I learned this one from Derek Sivers, how can I be helpful? Mm. If you ask yourself that question, how can I be helpful? That's how you put your audience first, right? It's not trying to uh, appease everyone. It's trying to be helpful to some people. Uh, number five, answer questions. I think every essay that we write or every, every I mean, you're answering your question right now, obviously, on the podcast, every book that we do, whatever it may be, uh, everything that we, we create usually attempts to answer a, a question that we've received or, or a question that we've been pondering ourselves. And so if you ask high-quality questions, you'll begin writing high-quality answers. And the better questions that you're answering, the better uh, content, the better value you will produce. Uh, number six, solve problems. I think the most informative writing identifies a problem and then takes, uh, takes the reader or the person listening or whatever it may be, it takes that person on a journey towards solving that problem. So ask yourself this question, what problems would you like to solve, right? Uh, number seven, write about your own life. You talked about wanting to do a self-help blog. I think that's great if you want to help others, but the way Ryan and I do that is by by sharing our own recipe, our own story, right? So, so not only will writing about your own life help you grow as an individual, it will also provide you with endless content for your blog. Uh, whenever I, I don't have something to write about, I tend to look for an experiment to, to implement in my own life. Right? And you, you've read about this on, on our blog for sure, right? We, I've lived without, phone for, without a phone for a couple months, or I've gone without home, home internet for a long time, or I'll start waking up at 3.30 a.m. as an experiment and have a, a new morning routine. Make yourself uncomfortable. I think that's really important for you, Keisha. Make yourself uncomfortable through this process. It's amazing what you'll learn once, uh, once you become the subject of your own blog. Uh, number eight for me is uh, write about what interests you. If you find something interesting, you're much more likely to write about uh, write about that uh, that thing, whatever that thing that interests you. You're, you're much more likely to write about it in a thought-provoking and unique way. Uh, if I were to sum that up in a, in a quick, pithy sentence, I would say, passion begets great creativity. Number nine, write about what makes you angry. Often the world's injustices provide the best fodder for me uh, to to have something great to, to write about, right? Uh, so what infuriates you, Keisha? What, what makes you angry? Write about that. Uh, but don't just vent. Venting isn't helpful. Make your writing constructive uh, and worthwhile and, and beneficial to other people. Uh, number 10, uh, this is, echoes what Ryan said about being consistent. For me, it's about writing at least uh, one blog post a week, uh, especially at first. Uh, I say write more if you can, in fact. Uh, but, but publishing at least one blog, blog post a week for me early on, uh, uh, whether it was a short, very short, you know, a couple sentences or a long 4,000-word missive, uh, that, that allowed me uh, to get the momentum that I needed to continually grow uh, just a, as a person but, but also develop my writing voice, which was really important, especially when I transitioned over to nonfiction. And it helps, it's going to help your, your, your blog or your creation reach more people over time if you're being consistent, as Ryan said. Uh, second to last one here, number 11, write and then rewrite. Uh, most of our blog posts at The Minimalists are, are 400 to 700 words, but their first drafts are often twice or three times as long as that. That's because good writing requires a lot of culling, leaving only the essential parts of the writing, uh, which takes a lot of time. But it's also important uh, to do that because if you want to earn your reader's trust, 
which that's what you want, right? You want people to trust you because they'll keep showing up if they trust you. Then you can't waste their time. Uh, I'm reminded of, of Mark Twain's famous quote here. I didn't have time to write a short letter, so I wrote you a long one instead. And that, that's cute for Mark Twain, but the truth is that you, you want to respect your audience, right? And you want to respect their most precious resource. It's not their money. It's their time and their attention. You're asking for their attention. So, so make time to edit your writing. We'll talk more about that hopefully. That's why Seth's blog is awesome, man. It's so good. It's because it's like sometimes it's just a few sentences, and sometimes it is, you know, five or 600 words. Mm-hmm. But everything that he sends out is meaningful, and it's well thought out, and it's necessary. It, yeah, exactly. Totally, man. Yeah, so, so, so respect your audience's attention, right? And, and make some time to edit your writing accordingly. There's never, to echo your point, Ryan, there's never this right length for a blog post. Mm. Yeah, that's why I say most of us are four to 700 words, but sometimes it can be we've had some that are 13 words, right? In fact, we had one that was 13 words, and it got us a keynote speaking gig at NAPO because the person liked it so much. So it can be really short, or we've written some things that are 4,000 words, and that's okay uh, too. It's, what's, what's the, nece- what, the, the only right length, basically, is the necessary length. Cut everything else. And finally, Keisha, you want to be useful, you want your writing to be helpful, which means that you must focus on both sides of the information coin, the how-to and the why-to. Uh, many bloggers I've seen online, you know, 50,000 new blogs are started every day. Many bloggers I see online write only how-to guides, which can be helpful for sure. Uh, but those blog posts are, are, are much more informative when you write about the why. What's the purpose, right? The, the why provides your readers with, with, with the, the benefits, the purpose, and thus gives them the, the, the leverage they need to implement the, the how side of things. So it's not just the how-to, it's the why-to. And so if I were to put that more succinctly, I would just say the why uh, uh, makes the how easy. And so, Keisha, I hope, I hope that's helpful. I'd like to give you a, a couple other things to, to help you out on your journey uh, one is our book, Essential, and we gave it to, to a copy to Jenny as well, but there's an entire chapter. It's the final chapter of the book. It's about success, and so since you act, a- asked about success, let's, let's give that to you and, and hope, hope you find some value in that. We'll either give you the, the print or the ebook version, or if we still have some download codes from Audible, Sean, let's, let's send her an audiobook version. And then also, I'd like to help you with, with your writing. Uh, I have a a one-day writing workshop that's coming up in uh, March of 2017. You can find the details at howtowritebetter.org. And I also have a four-week writing class that uh, requires a lot of effort, uh, seven to ten hours a week if you're willing to put in the work. I'll give either one of those to you, Keisha, if you think it'll help you uh, move in the right direction. Our next question is from Michael in Kansas City, Missouri. I was just calling with a question about your editing process. I love the way you edit, you know, cutting as much out as you possibly can, write it all down, cut it all out. I usually end up editing out at least 50% of what I write currently, but I am using printed paper to do all of my editing effectively right now. And I feel like even if I, you know, use double spacing and recycle the paper once I'm done with it, 
it still feels a bit wasteful to be printing out all these documents to just throw them back away again. And I was wondering if you guys used an app or something special on your laptop or a tablet to get your editing done versus printing everything out on paper. I think that good writing is rewriting. And so I talk about this a lot in, in my writing class, actually. I think one of the common misconceptions we have is we want to write something. We want to get it out in front of the world right away. I think you're asking the right question here, Michael, about the editing process. So for me, something tends to start out much longer than it ends up. So I gave some examples about blog posts with the, with the last question with Keisha, but uh, some books as an example. Everything that remains is, I think, 216 pages. It was about 900 pages at its bloated zenith. And I had to cut a lot. Now, a part of that was just cutting stories. Now, many of those were the same story rewritten in different ways. So it's not like it was 900 publishable pages necessarily. But there were hundreds of pages that were cut from that thing to get it down to what its essence was. And so don't be afraid to... Uh, let the page bleed, so to speak. I'm holding my red pen right now, and uh, Ryan's looking. I, I always write in red, and I'm constantly marking things up. But I spend about 30% of my time writing and about 70% of my time editing or rewriting. Uh, there's a, a very helpful metaphor that uh, uh, Sean uh, gave to me many years ago that I use in, in my writing class, actually. It's, uh, I, it's a mixed metaphor now because I've, I've added on to it. But the, the writing process itself uh, is uh, akin to a jam session. So if you get a band together and you just start jamming, you don't have any fixed strategy there. It's not meant to be recorded or anything. But in time, you'll eventually have you, – you'll create something meaningful. You'll create this mountain of music and eventually you'll have something that's maybe worth recording. And that's where the editing process comes in. For me, the editing process is more a different metaphor. It's like panning for gold. You have to create this mountain of sediment, and eventually you will find the gold in that sediment. And so, so a third metaphor that's really helpful for me is sculpting, right? If you have... Uh, if you you want to have more rock to work with, more marble to work with, if you're trying to create a beautiful sculpture, right? Uh, Michelangelo could not have created the David if he just had a couple stones laying around, right? Mm-hmm. He had to have this massive amount of uh, of sculpture or of of marble to sculpt from. The weird thing about being a writer is you have to also create that marble with your words. Mm. And so it's getting them onto the page. And, and so having that jam session allows you to do that. And, and then once you have enough, uh, enough content, enough words there on the page, you can turn that 4,000-word blog post into a 400-word very meaningful thing that people are going to be willing to share and encouraged to share and feel good about what they've read and what they've spent their time and attention on. Ryan, do you want to talk about any, any apps or, or paper or what do you what do you use to write? Yeah, I mean you and I both use Scrivener. Mm-hmm. I mean hands down like that is the best app um, that I found to write. It just allows you to organize things really, really nicely, like as far as outlines and notes and edits and drafts. Um, it has a really nice I love drafts. Uh, <laughs> it just has a really nice uh uh yeah and intuitive uh way of of, of keeping your writings kind of nice and orderly without going all over the place. I remember when I first started writing, it was uh, just like pages documents, and I just had a folder that was like essays, and then I would just like throw uh, pages documents or you know word documents or whatever in there, 
And uh, once you get, you know, 20 or 30 documents in there, it's kind of hard to keep track. Mm -hmm. And you forget, um, you know, what is, uh, you know, which essay is what, so forth and so on. Scrivener, I think, allows allows you to keep track a, a lot better, especially when writing a book, for sure. Yeah. Now, the paper issue that he brings up. Um, so Scrivener would definitely help, the paper issue. But, you know, I want to say, too, we have this thing with like paper towels and, and, and using uh, paper to write on and how it's it's killing the environment and it's destroying forests. You know, there there are trees planted specifically for uh, paper companies. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and you're saying this as, a, as I mean, Ryan is one of the most environmentalist people I know. Yes, like it's not now. Look, like don't get me wrong. I'm not encouraging people to like go out there and just start using paper all willy nilly, setting fire to reams of paper. Right, exactly. Like that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is don't be scared to use to use paper. Uh, yes, uh, there's still a lot that goes into a landfill if it's not recycled. There are still, you know, problems uh, with using a, an excessive amount of paper. But I guess what I'm trying to say to you, Michael, is that let's say that, you know, putting your first draft down on actual paper is like a really good start for you. That's okay, man. And then if you want to move over to Scrivener and start editing things down, great. I think you can definitely cut down on the paper consumption um, but don't be scared to to use regular, you know, pen and paper st still goes a very long way. A handwritten letter is still a very nice thing to get. Mm -hmm. So uh, don't be scared to use paper. Um, there, there are, uh, we're not killing forests anymore to to create these paper products. Yeah, and, and don't deprive yourself either. It's interesting. Um, if you're looking for good notebooks or good pens, I just got this recommendation for this one. But there is a, a podcast. Uh, Kevin Rose has a podcast called The Journal. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, he did an episode with a guy who is like just a total pen and paper freak and, and talks about how, uh, responsible use. And so I think that's really what you're saying is, is don't deprive yourself, but also be responsible with, 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 what, with what you have. And so it's not wrong to use paper. The question is, how do I get down to, to no paper whatsoever? It's how do I have a radically reduced amount of paper? Because let's be honest, we don't need paper for most of the things we do. So that if you do need paper for your creative endeavors, then you get to use it and not feel bad about it. For me, I often will print out uh, a, a close to, to finished draft, and then I will take a pen to paper and, and, and do a final edit on that thing before going back to the computer and, and typing it up. I also use notebooks to, to take notes and to make notes for this podcast. So, yeah, I'm not allergic to paper. In terms of other apps, um, Scrivener is, is certainly the best thing for essays and books. It allows you to format your books as well. So if you want to put them up on Kindle or you, we do our print book formatting now with, with Scrivener. Uh, but also, I use just the regular Notepad app on my phone. I have an iPhone and, and on my uh, computer. And because they sync up, I mean, I write a ton of stuff in, in just a Notepad. It's a great way for me to capture. And also, Evernote is another way that I've used in the past. I don't still use it as much. But uh, the Notepad, just the regular Notepad on, on Mac works really well for me. And I'm less concerned about the tools these days. You know, I'm, I don't care what pencil Stephen King uses. What I care about is, like, what's the process? And so you asked, you asked Michael about, about the process. Yeah, I will I usually write my first draft. Uh, I'll type it out, and then I will uh, write several other drafts and, uh, going through the editing process. So I, I do flow state writing where I don't edit anything for first draft. But I go, and I think it's really important to try to stave off the, the self-editor. Most people listening to this w won't do it. They, they won't have the discipline to do it. But if you're willing to try that out for a month, it'll totally change the way that you write. Stave off the self-editor. Then you can go back to it and, and 
focus all your time on editing and you actually enjoy the editing process then if you're willing to sit down and and and, and go through that that just chipping away chiseling that that sculpting that masterpiece you're trying to get to well it interrupts the process man like totally. if, like if you are two sentences in you're like oh man i could say that those two sentences better mm-hmm. like whatever your next thought was for that third sentence like you you have a high probability of losing that yeah. thought if you go back to edit the you know two sentences and then oh, okay now i'm going to start on that third sentence oh yeah what was i talking about Absolutely. And so, so the thing I often teach is, is called narrative urgency. It, it, the first sentence has to serve the second sentence. That's the only job of the first sentence of whatever you're writing is to serve the second sentence. Now, the job of the second sentence is different. It has to serve the third sentence, so forth and so on. I don't care how beautiful or flowery or gorgeous you think the writing is. If it doesn't serve that narrative urgency, you got to cut it. But you don't want to cut it during the composition process. The composition is just getting the words onto the page. The, the editing process is where everything hits the cutting room floor. And so for me, yes, I will often print stuff out during the third, fourth draft process, and, and, and I will make some, some line edits with a, with a red pen on paper. But most of the stuff I do is, is done electronically at this point. Uh, but some of the editing I do, some of the culling I do, it helps to print it out and use, use my red pen to really tackle it. I spend a whole week talking about this, Michael. If you're willing to put some effort in, I, I spend a whole week talking about the editing process in my four-week writing class at howtowritebetter.org. And I'd love to give you that class for free if and only if you're willing to put in the time. I, I go out of my way to often talk people out of the class because they're not willing to put in the, the seven to 10 hours a week to, to radically improve their writing. But if you're willing to, Michael, I'd love to give you uh, the, the four-week class at howtowritebetter.org. Or if you don't have the time for that, I'll give you the one-day workshop that's coming up in March. So you can take the four, four-week class whenever you want. It's at your own leisure. In fact, you can extend it up to 16 weeks if you really wanted to. It's something like 23 different videos and a bunch of different emails and 60 or 80 pages worth of of content, written content, and some book recommendations. But if you don't want to do that, you don't have the time to do that, you want to do a one-day workshop, I spend a good amount of time talking about editing in that one-day workshop. I'll give you whatever works best for you. Our next question is from Ray in New Jersey. I'm interested in starting a blog, but I'm a senior, and I don't really have any idea how to start it or what's involved. So if you could help me, that would be appreciated. So when I was 29 years old, 28 years old, I, I was writing fiction, and I was, I was in the middle of writing this novel called As a Decade Fades, and I was having some struggle with it because uh, the, the main character, it was a totally different main character from, from the main character who is in it now, uh, a guy named Jody Grafton. And... I met with Colin Wright for the first time. We met in New York City. This was June of 2010, so I was getting ready to turn 29. And he recommend. I told. I wanted to meet with him about publishing. Like, how do I get my work published? Because like, I'm not having any success with this. I'm trying to send this off to people. And he's like, "You should publish yourself. You should just start a blog." And I'm like, "What the hell is a blog, man?" Like. Ryan and I jokingly will say we, we, we thought it's where old ladies catalog pictures of their cats, right? Which are still the most popular blogs, by the way. Right. They, they, they get a lot of eyeballs. They're so cute. <laughs> um, but the truth is, like, I didn't know what a blog was. I couldn't spell HTML. And, in fact, uh, eventually, after Ryan did his whole packing party and we decided to write about this thing, we're like, okay, let's let's go back to get that advice. Let's start a website. And, and 
I don't know how to do this. And I remember calling Ryan saying, I, I was trying to code this thing with HTML. Like I, that's how clueless I'm like going to the library and getting books on HTML programming and didn't realize there was something called WordPress. And, and so I understand it could be overwhelming, but I can show you how to start a blog now in about an hour, less than an hour actually, yeah. because Ryan and I spent about a hundred hours trying to start our blog. And it was, I mean, there was one point where I just gave up. I called Ryan and I said, you know, I'm done, man. F this, like, I, I cannot do this. Like, this is driving me insane. But eventually, like, I figured out, okay, there's this thing called WordPress, and there are different templates you can use to design your blog and actually make it beautiful. And so there are other platforms out there as well. People use uh, Squarespace or TypePad or Tumblr. Tumblr yeah. yeah. So, so there are all these different places. The reason I use WordPress is twofold. One is I think it's 26% of all websites are on the Internet now you are built on a, a WordPress framework. Oh, wow. So that, that there's nothing that's even close to that. But two, and more important to me, is it gives me much more flexibility. Just about every serious blogger I know uses WordPress. And so Ryan and I have gotten this question so many times via email that we, a few years ago, wrote a blog post about how do you start your own successful blog? And so, Ray, if you just go to theminimalists.com slash blog, we walk you through exactly step-by-step every step that we took to start our blog from just having the idea to registering the domain name to designing our blog and the font and tinkering with it to make it the creation that, that we wanted. And it was much easier than... We made it, right? Because right now, if I need to restart our, our blog, I could do that in about an hour or so, even though we spent over 100 hours trying to figure it out. Yeah. That was 100 hours, 99 hours of failure and an hour of, oh, this is what you do. This is way easy. There's so many people I know who are not techn- technologically savvy, including myself, who run a beautiful blog now because the tools are out there. And so we provide you with the exact tools you need. And to be honest with you, it's relatively inexpensive. I think hosting a blog now is like three bucks a month, roughly. Yeah. And and so you can... There are free options out there too, man. Like right, yeah. Squarepa- Squarespace, you can start a blog in less than five minutes, man. Yeah, but it's expensive. It's pretty expensive. Oh, the Squarepa- yeah, does Squarespace yeah. cost? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like 10, 15 bucks a month. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, but... It's an option, and so you, you can do that, but you don't have the same amount of control over, over your blog. But I, I've seen people who – I've never seen a really ser- serious blogger use Squarespace. I'm sure people can tweet me and tell me there are exceptions to that for sure. But but most serious blogs I've seen out there, you know, are, they use they use WordPress, mm-hmm. and y- you can too, and you can host it for a relatively inexpensive amount. Or if you just want to start somewhere like blogger.com or tumblr.com to get started, mm-hmm. you're not going to have a very beautiful site, but you're going to have the ability to at least – create something and get it in front of the world if that's what you want to do. So I think that's I think it's a great way to start. Uh, same thing for you, Ray. I, I, I teach that four-week writing class, and the last week is what I call Neopub, the new world of publishing, because we're all publishers now. And so I talk to people about the difference between self-publishing and independent publishing. It's kind of like a garage band versus a really cool indie rock band. And so getting your work out into the world, we're all publishers now. We're all authorpreneurs. Even if you're published by one of the big six publishers, you're in charge of your own destiny. You want that, that, that 
book to get in front of more people. It's going to be up to you to try to get it in front of more people. And so, Ray, like you, I couldn't spell HTML. I can barely spell it now, but I know how to get my, my work in front of the world, and we have a guide out there for you. I hope that helps you. And if you're interested in taking that class, I'd be happy to, uh, to sign you up for it. We'll have Sean reach out to you. My favorite part of that essay, man, on how to start a successful blog yeah. is the three reasons why not to start a blog. Oh, yeah, let's talk about that. <clears throat> so the first one is money. Uh, you should not start a blog to make money. So uh, the, that, that's the Does thing. Does that mean like, you're pe- allergic to money, Ryan? Not at all. But you know, people assume, oh, well, you're the minimalist and you have a successful blog and you left the corporate world to do that. So you, you must have just quit your job and started a blog. Uh-huh. And that's just not how it works. That is like, if, if anyone ever gives you that advice, head for the hills. That is the worst advice so, ever. To, 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 to rely on a blog to supplement your income for the rest of your life, uh, especially from like the word go, uh, that you're thinking, okay, how am I going to make money off this blog? That is, that is a sure recipe for disaster. Mm. Yeah, well, it's funny because yeah, I remember we, we've done a few events uh, in the past where someone will ask, yeah, we do Q&A at the end of our events, and someone will ask, basically, how do I quit my job and still make a uh, – or how do, I, how do I do what you do? And, and you'll say, oh, well, you know, you just quit your job and you start a blog. Because that's what we did, and it just worked out fine. But the truth <laughs> is that that's kind of not what we did. Like, in fact, even now, like, we don't make money directly from our, our blog. We, we've built an audience, and then we have creations out there that we charge money for, like books or audio books. Or, or this podcast is completely free. And In fact, we wrote an essay about why we refuse to take advertisements on our blog, and that has translated over to our podcast. I get emails all the time from potential advertisers wanting to advertise on this podcast. And literally, Ryan, you and I are turning down five figures a month Oh yeah, every single month by not putting advertisements on our blog or our podcast. And that's difficult, but it doesn't align with, with our values. And so is it okay to make money off of your creations? Absolutely. The question is, does this align with the person I want to be? And if so, then I'm okay with making money from it. But Derek Sivers has a great, uh, a great metaphor, right? He says, you don't want to put a, a Coke machine in the monastery. And that's why if I started, I feel like if I started hawking sweat-wicking underwear on this, this podcast or on our website, like, there's nothing wrong with it. I can recommend stuff without, sure. but, but what, what, where's the line? Like, if I just started putting pop-ups and everything else, that would seem even more disingenuous, especially because we're writing about, you know, intentional consumption and stuff like that. Let's not add to the noise here. Yeah, definitely. What, uh, what were the other reasons not to start a blog? Second reason uh, we have on there is notoriety. Like, if you're going to start a blog to get famous, again, wrong reason. That is that is uh, something that, that uh, again, recipe for disaster. Mm. If you're starting fr- from day one saying, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be this great voice in the world and uh, you know I want to have millions of followers too or millions of readers and uh, yes that's what I'm going to do the problem is that if you're writing for millions of people then again it starts to become vanilla and uh, you start to lose your voice um, so yes don't don't plan on getting internet famous at least you know not right away yeah and, and if, it, if it happens great I, I wrote an essay called the right kind of fame mm-hmm. and, and there, there are basically two types of, of fame there's famous for being famous we, we can all think of 
yeah, the, the reality stars that, that are famous just for being famous, right? And then the other kind is you've added immense value to a lot of people's lives, and so you're well-known in a much narrower sense. I mean, Ryan and I get people come up to us all the time and say, hey, thanks for your podcast, thanks for your, your books, your blog, or whatever. Uh, we're certainly not famous, but we're, we are known amongst a certain segment of people because we've added value to their lives. And that's okay. That, that, in fact, it makes me feel good when some, someone comes up and says, hey, thank you for doing what you do. And so we'd love to hear what you have to say. Oh, wait, we got one we more. We got one more. Oh, man. Yeah, man. Uh, I jumped the gun. That's all right. The uh, uh, don't write because of traffic. People think, uh. people always ask us, like, um, and, and now we're really public with, you know, how many people visit the website, but people would ask, you know, before we w- would really like go out there and talk, like how many readers do you have a month? And you know what, when it was like two or 3000 readers, I didn't want to tell someone, oh, we have 3000 readers a month. Yeah. The truth is 3000 is pretty awesome. That is, we... it is very, very awesome. But just think about this, focusing on the wrong thing. 50,000 blogs are started every single day. Yeah. Most of them have very functionally zero readers, right? And so, yeah, should I start a blog and, and, and uh, with all this noise? Yeah, but but you shouldn't want to add to the noise to what? Create more traffic? Create more traffic. Well, people think that traffic equals income. So, you know, it kind of goes back to that. And, and it even goes back to the notoriety. Like, well, if I've got, you know, this many people coming to my website every single month, well, then I can earn an income off of it or uh, or that makes me famous. But But bad traffic equals zero traffic. I'll give you an example. Um, I had a, a, a buddy who essentially, he, he kind of does his own online thing. And this was a few years ago. Um, he had posted something on his website and like on Facebook. And he sent me this note. He's like, hey, man, I just want to let you know I sent you, uh, you know, 50,000 uh, people to your website this month. And I started looking at the, uh, uh, the numbers of, the, of uh, you know, where it was coming from. Uh-huh. And looking at how long people were spending time on site, and it was less than like twenty seconds. Oh my goodness! It, like that was the average for the traffic. So people were just showing up and leaving, right? Yeah, so it was great, and and it was a good thought. Um, but at the end of the day, it was like you know, thank you for that traffic, but your audience obviously uh, isn't aligning with what we're writing about, right? And uh, you know, sending someone to our website who's going to look at it for you know fifteen seconds and then leave. That's bad traffic, and bad traffic is zero traffic. You might as well have zero people visit. It's it maybe even worse than that, right? Because you've worked really hard to get the wrong kind of traffic. I've never thought about it this way, but think we use that that word traffic. Usually, I use it pejoratively, like, "Oh man, I went to Seattle. You should have seen the traffic there." Mm. It's a negative thing. Yeah. And so the question is, am I getting the right kind of traffic? Because if it's just a bunch of people showing up to the car accident and then leaving and never coming back. Well, then what does that mean? That's Kevin Kelly point. writes about 1,000 true fans. And the number, it, it, he admits that you can change depending on what, what um, medium you're in. If you're an artist, it maybe you want your dozen true fans, right? Or if you're a blogger, maybe it's your 10,000 true fans. I, I don't know what, what the number is, but it doesn't matter. The point is that you don't need as many people as you think. Seth Godin talks about this a lot as well. Seth Godin actually talks about writing for the smallest possible audience. Mm. Uh, in the last five years, his audience has shrunk by half. And he's done that very intentionally. He's trying to write for a smaller audience, a smaller portion of people, but create exponentially more value for that smaller audience. Think about that. If, you have, if you're writing for 2 million people and they get 
uh, five units of value from from your writing, uh, uh, well, then you have 10 million units of value that you've created. But now if you start writing for a million people, half the audience, but for each person you're creating 100 units of value for that person, you now have 10 times more value that you're creating for a smaller audience. Wouldn't you rather have that than just having more traffic? Eyeball. Yeah, more eyeballs on your... Yeah, yeah on let's your avoid words. the traffic jam and, and instead just have... Uh, meaningful work that resonates with a smaller group of people. And I think we can all strive to do that and add value to our own corner of the world. Okay, now it's okay to move on if you want. <laughs> we, let's move on. We'd love to hear what you have to say. So if you have a comment about creating or creativity or or blog traffic or whatever you have a comment about, leave us a voicemail, 406-219-7839. We will air our favorite comments and tips on the next episode. And here is a tip for you. Write down your message before you call. It will help you articulate your point and increase your chance of being on the show. Okay, let's move on to our hashtag, Ask the Minimalists Lightning Round, where we answer questions from social media. Sean, can you give me like a like an ACDC, like lightning, you know what I'm talking or, about? Or maybe just a tambourine. <laughs> That's way boring. <laughs> All right, yes. Uh, so anyway, we, we are on social media on uh, Twitter and Instagram, at The Minimalists, and Facebook.com slash The Minimalists. Uh, on all those platforms, we, we try to publish only content that will add value to other people's lives. So you're welcome to follow us there. But only follow us if, if you find value in, in what we put out there. And, of course, unfollow, unsubscribe at any time. Uh, during our lightning round, of course, Ryan and I do our best to answer each question with just a short, shareable, less than 140-character response. And we also put the text to these minimal maxims in the show notes so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you'd like. All right, our first question is from Bradford. Can you discuss the relationship slash differences between creativity and originality? Ryan, what's your pithy answer My pithy answer is this. If you create something unique by default... It is original. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I were, if I were just to add on to that, my answer would be worthwhile creations reside at the intersection of connection and originality. And the other way to put that would be connection and uniqueness, right? You have to be able to do both. You have to be able to connect and also be unique. It's the communication and expression piece of things. Absolutely. Miko writes in, I love to dabble in many visual art forms. I have supplies for all of them and many half-completed projects. Recommendations? My pithy answer is this. Concentrating on one thing at a time is the best way to accomplish any task. There's no such thing as multitasking. Mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is if you've got a million different projects going on, let go of 99 point, or 99% of them. 99.9% of them if you've got a million. 999,999. <laughs> let them all go. Let, let them all go except for that one and start there. That, that will help you to decide uh, what truly is going to add value and, and what's truly important. Yeah, I, w- I would just say that constraint breeds creativity. Uh, if you want, you can use the 90-90 rule to let go of anything you haven't used in the last 90 days or won't use in the next 90. 
It's okay to sometimes constrain yourself to not have all the tools you think you need. You might find that you become more creative in the process. Weon asks, how do you define creativity? It's not about how others define creativity. The one putting in the work gets to decide. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that, man. Um, for, for me, this is less of a definition, but, but it's a, more about what creativity isn't. Uh, my answer is creativity sits within the absence of consumption. Mm. So if you... That was pithy. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, man. If you consume less, you can create more. Robin asks, creativity often involves creating stuff. How do you reconcile producing material things while trying to live with less stuff? Dude, we are like steeped in irony as the minimalists. <laughs> we don't have a very minimalist uh, audience. We don't have, you know, we don't sell a minimalist amount of books. We certainly Look at are. your hair, Ryan. It's not very, it's minimal. not very minimalist. <laughs> I can't believe you're wearing shoes today, man. <laughs> you're such a poser. Uh, here's my pithy answer. Living with less makes room for the things, even physical that add the most value to our lives. Yes, indeed. So, so for me, I would just say, don't just live with less stuff. Live without excess. Amen. I mean, you know, any artist out there, or uh, going back to, uh, you know, the, uh, the gentleman who's asking about um, his many visual art forms that, that he's working on, if you throw away everything, like, y- you could be miserable, Yes. You know, it's not about just getting rid of, uh, of all the stuff you can possibly and, and, and living like a monk. It's, it's really about boiling it down to, to what means the most to you. Farzana, how do you keep motivated to create content that will add value? If I stop creating, I stop living. Love that, man. Yeah, for me, I would just say avoid content in favor of meaningful creations. Content is nebulous. Important creations align with your values. Erin, she writes in, what is this thing called flow state? And how does one enter into this magical realm? Well, my pithy answer for this is, is there is no magical formula. Mm. Put in the work and you will find a flow state. Yeah, for me, the, the four words that have, that have really defined my ability to put in the work day after day after day, is that, you know, it's, not, it's not always easy to do it. And so these four words define my, my work habits, my process, and, and the way that I'm, I'm willing to, to put in the effort. And these four words are drudge through the drudgery. Comrade, what's the best way to live in countryside and do farming in a minimalist way well i I, i'm gonna answer this one alone here i think it's important with when you're creating anything ryan or 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 we just have questions we get all the time it's a very american thing maybe a western thing or maybe it's just a human thing to want to have an answer to every question Mm -hmm. so here's my answer to this question when confronted with an unknown it's okay to say i don't know and those three words, Ryan, those, they're so freeing and powerful because I can tell comrade, I don't know. We don't have the answers to everything. Yeah, I can tell you. I'm not a farmer. I don't live in the countryside. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you, like, we lived in the, in the cabin in the middle of nowhere yeah. and realized, like, we did not want to do that. No. So I can tell you how not to live <laughs> <laughs> in the countryside. But, uh, but comrade, you're going to have to come up with your own recipe there, man. Uh, tiny house, 
uh, maybe it's a camper, uh, whatever. Maybe it's a maybe it's a big old farm because you got a bunch of animals and stuff. But you know, to each their own. You're gonna have to figure out that recipe on your own, comrade. Okay, let's move on to our added value portion of the show. This is where we each recommend something that has added value to our lives recently. So. Uh, speaking of Netflix, our, our documentary is on there, but I saw this animated short uh, film, I, I guess you could call it. It's like 16 minutes long, Ryan, and it is called World of Tomorrow, and I couldn't do it any justice trying to explain Sounds it. Sounds like a James Bond flick. It, it does, or a Tom Cruise film right. or something. But no, it's just, it, it's, it's, they're like line drawings, and it has to do with dealing with the future and uploaded consciousness and what it means to be a human being. And they accomplish all of this beautifully in like a 16-minute time period. I, I don't know if it's elsewhere. It may be on iTunes and other places too. It's called World of Tomorrow. And you can see the trailer to it. I think we'll put it in the show notes. And then uh, I don't have this recommendation, but but Podcast Sean, our, our fearless producer, just recommended it. Uh, there is an app called Hemingway. And, and so we talked about staving off the self-editor. Well, one of the ways to do that is to use this Hemingway app, apparently. I'm going to have to check it out. Uh, uh, the way that I've done it in the past, uh, so here's the, the, the poor man's hack for it, is I'd open up a Scrivener file, or if you have a Word document, I don't recommend Word, by the way. Uh, it makes formatting very difficult. But anyway, uh, it, it, whatever file you use, I turn all the text white on the white page, and so I can't see what I'm writing. It sort of disappears. It's that like is disappearing, genius, man. Disappearing ink. Why have I not done this yet? I, I, it took me forever to figure out. You know, I did before that. I used to just tape a piece of paper to my screen. <laughs> and I'm like, why don't I just... I accidentally turned text white one time, and I'm like, oh, my God. This is genius. Yeah, but, So much better than white out on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was wondering what was wrong with your computer. <laughs> But no, um, uh, Sean's recommending this Hem- Hemingway app. He's a big Hemingway fan. Uh, but uh, anyway, I guess it doesn't allow you to go back and edit. I don't know for what period of time or whatever, but maybe check that out. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well, and, and, and I'll test it out. Ryan, what do you got this week? Oh, man. Okay, so speaking of writing apps, this is like a step up from the Hemingway app. Uh-huh. It's called uh, the Most Dangerous. the Jimingway app? <laughs> <laughs> it's called the Most Dangerous Writing app. Uh, I got this from Colin Wright. I saw him tweet about it, or I think he maybe posted it in the asymmetrical community on Facebook. But essentially... Uh, it forces you to write for either 3, 5, 10, 20, 30, or 60 minutes. So you get to pick the increment. So you want to start on three minutes, and you have to continuously write for three minutes. If you stop for more than five seconds, it deletes everything. Oh, that's so good. So you can't even go back and edit. Uh, you could try, but it will delete everything. And I've, I've, I've used this a few times um, just on some short things. I've never gone to the 60-minute mode. Like, that's pretty crazy. Um, oh, but I love it, man. I love they even it. have this thing called a hardcore mode. So it's like, you know, it takes that five seconds and cuts it to like three seconds. Oh, man. So uh, that, that I'll, I'll have that in the, or Sean will make sure to, uh, podcast Sean will make sure to put that in the notes for y'all. And then I'm going to recommend, I know I've recommended this before. I'm pretty sure I have. But um, I got to tell you, man, I have been working with this uh, family, who, a refugee family that has um, come to Missoula. Uh, they, they have been all over the place. And finally, um, they are like now... Where they from originally? uh, From Eritrea, which is uh, borders Ethiopia. It Uh actually used to be Ethiopia, but it succeeded like you know twenty one years ago or something. And you know Ethiopia is like this dictatorship, and then Eritrea is like this black hole (laughs) of a dictatorship. It's much much worse. And they've been uh, through like um, uh, 
uh, refugee camps in like Libya and Sudan, and then, then they were in actually Malta for a little bit, mm. and now here they're finally in the States. But I got to tell you, man, like helping this family, contributing to this family, it is like the most rewarding thing I've done in a really, really long time, That's man. That's beautiful, man. Just being able to have like hands-on. Um, yesterday I was helping uh, – Abraham is his name. I was helping him apply for this um, housekeeping job at like a lo- local hospital here. And he just like lo- the most genuine look. And I've been helping him for like weeks. But the most genuine look, he, he looks at me yesterday. And he's like, Ryan, I love you so much. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, man. Like, thank you for that. Like, I love you too, man. Like, I'm so happy to help. Do you have any resources where people can go for it? To- so so I'm, not, I'm not recommending to like go. I mean, if you have, uh, if you have um, an IRC which is, uh, I believe it stands for International Rescue Center, maybe. Okay. Um, but but you, can, you, can, you can just look up IRC uh, refugee offices. I'm sure Sean will be able yeah, to put something in the Yeah, notes. we'll put something in the notes. And you can see if there's a local IRC office in your town. But I'm not, I'm not really recommending necessarily to go help refugees. Uh, what mm. it helped me to appreciate was you don't have to find refugees to contribute. Mm. I am recommending that you go out... And especially this time, this time of the year, like the holiday season, this is the best time to contribute. Yeah. Uh, giving is, is truly better than receiving. You can make this a, a family event. Mariah and I, um, we have uh, uh, been, been mentoring this family together, and it has been a beautiful experience. So I, I am recommending, my second recommendation is contribution to your community yeah. or contribution to your neighbor. Uh, get out there and, and, and give to someone. You, I promise you, like, it will feel so, so good. Refugees is certainly one way to do that. I think yeah. that's great. Uh, uh, Becca and I, um, we are taking Ella. We're trying to help her understand. So you go to the YMCA. They have a giving tree there. And, and you probably remember these growing up. But, like, I remember being a re- recipient of the mm. giving trees, like where people would buy us, like, coats and mittens and stuff like that. And uh, last night at dinner I was trying to explain to, to Ella that uh, – Ella's our three-year-old uh, – that you know, she's like, well, wh- why – why, why do you go to the giving tree to get gifts for other kids? Like, I, I said, well, some kids aren't as fortunate as you. They don't have a coat or they don't have mittens or they maybe not have toys or the things they need to, to just stay warm. And, and so we're trying to give to them. And, and we've got her uh, used to giving now. We, we have like a donation box. She's all constantly trying to donate half her toys all the time. <laughs> if she doesn't like something. So sweet. Like, even if she doesn't like you know, a piece of food on her plate, I want to donate this. <laughs> So, so maybe we've taken it a bit far. Um, uh, by the way, uh, you can see here we have a I have a house tour coming up uh, at the Minimalists. Actually, I think by the time this this publishes this podcast is out, you can find my house tour and, and Ella running rampant throughout the house uh, at uh, theminimalists.com/slash/milburn m i l l b u r n. But uh, we're we're trying to find ways to give, man. Uh, new empowering ways to give. Because another thing I've been doing is is giving to different charities and other people's names. I, I wrote a big check yesterday to Doctors Without Borders. Um, so giving money is, is one way to contribute. That's important. A lot of these organizations need money. The best place to go for that is givewell.org if you want to find the, the most vetted charities, the charities that will truly save people's lives. That's one of the best places to go. Ryan often mentions Charity Water. They're a great charity also. But then how do we look locally? And so mm. if there's a place like a giving tree where you can contribute to someone in your community, if there are refugees, if there's a soup kitchen or a homeless shelter or a food bank, these are all places where Ryan and I have been able to contribute to other people over the years. I would encourage you to just reach out and find what is your local you know, uh, uh, 
food bank or, or charity or, or place that you can help the people who need help right now. I got to tell you, man, I was bringing Abraham to uh, an English class the other day. Uh-huh. And it, it was like with the first snow that we had here in Missoula. So it was like last week. Yeah. And it was the first time he had ever seen snow. Wow. Dude, it was like, I just, the wonder in his eyes and like the way he just like leaned down and like, you know, kind of got his face a little close to the snow and he's like rubbing his hand over it. Oh my god. Just like help me appreciate such small things. I'm like, when did I lose that wonder Mm. with snow? I mean, I love to snowboard, so, you know, I still enjoy the snow, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, it was just a really cool experience. I lost that wonder with snow when I became an adult. <laughs> he's, he's actually once, once my heart froze over, Ryan, I no longer appreciated snow. He's, he's an acrobat, and he was telling me yesterday how he slipped on the ice, <sighs> and he's like, thank God I'm an acrobat. Oh, my goodness. Because <laughs> he was like, he'd do some acrobatic moves. He did a flip backwards. Right. <laughs> All right, so, so g- great, great recommendations today, Ryan. Thank you. Uh, let's move on to right here, right now. Uh, this is where we get to talk about what's going on in the lives of the minimalists. One more time, just to reiterate, our documentary, Minimalism, is now available today on Netflix. The more people who watch that and rate it, it gets it in their algorithm, so more people get to see it. Uh, and so they don't actually give us the specific numbers of everyone who sees it or whatever. But if you want to get it in front of more people, now's the time to do that. You can, the holidays are a perfect time. People are getting together. You want to watch that with your friends and family. Or if you've been recommending it to people and they're like, yeah, I don't want to spend $10 to, to buy this thing on another platform. Well, if they have Netflix, they can watch it. If you don't have Netflix, that's okay. Don't worry. You're not left out. Uh, by the way, the Netflix release is just in the United States, Canada, Australia and the United Kingdom. That's not our fault. That's just what they. The, that's just the countries they picked it up in. But don't worry. Yes, it's still available to you worldwide on Vimeo. It's available. People in over, I think, 120 countries have seen it on Vimeo now. But in most countries, it's also available on iTunes and Google Play and Amazon. And in North America, it's even on even on DVD. So, uh, however you want to watch that film, if you didn't get a chance to see it in theaters, it was the number one documentary of 2016, number one indie documentary of 2016. Um, Now you have a chance to watch it on any of those platforms. You can find all of them over at minimalismfilm.com or just go to Netflix and type in minimalism. You will find it over there. And to celebrate the release tonight, December 15th at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Ryan and I are hosting a Facebook Live celebration event. Uh, we'll answer your questions. We'll do a Q&A, so general questions or questions about the film. And we'll also do some talking about the behind-the-scenes or, or the making of the film and the two-and-a-half, almost three years that went into creating the, the this creation, but also the other almost forgotten part of the process of creating is getting it out into the world. That is a whole other art, and so we can talk to you about that tonight. If you miss that video or that that live event, we'll also have the video on our Facebook page over at facebook.com slash The Minimalists. What else do I have here, Ryan? I already mentioned my my house tour, theminimalists.com slash Milburn. Find a bunch of photos of uh, of our home, uh, me and Bex and, and Ella. And Ryan has a house tour that's already up there as well. You can find that. It'll be in the, the bottom of that. And also Becca is doing a, a separate kitchen tour of the kitchen. A lot of people are asking, like, can I see inside your cabinets and closets and stuff like that? And uh, I don't know if you saw a lot of that with, with your house tour, but I've, I've noticed that. And I did. So, after we po- published that, uh-huh. I was like, damn, I wish I would have taken several more pictures. Uh-huh. 
but uh, but you know, I didn't want to like, I wanted to keep some privacy. Sure. Um, yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's awesome that you guys are doing that. So so Bex, she has she's just such a, a great cook. I mean, just one of the the best cooks I've ever met. She she runs a blog called minimalwellness.com. Uh, there are recipes over there, all of her recipes, but also she writes about nutrition. She's a registered dietitian, and uh, she also does one-on-one uh, mentoring or coaching uh, with respect to diet and exercise and stuff like that. She's literally the health- healthiest person I know. Um, but she's, because she does a lot in the kitchen, she's going to do a special kitchen tour, and so you can check that out over at minimalwellness.com. Last but not least, we already mentioned this, but... Happy, Happy birthday, birthday to us. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the minimalists turn six years old uh, today. Six years young, and our lives have changed appreciably several times. I've grown more over the last six years. I've been grateful to be able to contribute, whether it's contributing to our audience and helping people let go of that which is in the way or building elementary schools overseas or orphanages or or contributing to local U.S.-based charities. We've had the opportunity to grow ourselves, but also to give to others. So thank you all for being a part of that journey. Whether you're brand new to the podcast or you've been along, you were one of the first 52 people to visit the website uh, uh, that first week. Thank you so much for being a, a part of, uh, of this, this journey that I'm we've had. I'm pretty sure that first month it was my mother who was just visiting our website, you know, 52 times that month. Well, thanks, Kelly. <laughs> All right. Finally, here are some voicemail comments and tips from our listeners. Hello. Uh, I'm, this is Aaron Atkinson from uh, Hamilton, Canada. I just listened to your episode on, on focus. I just wanted to comment on uh, something that you mentioned briefly, uh, which was the quote, be the change you want to see in the world. Uh, it's something that you hear a lot kind of in the world of inspiration and motivation. But uh, I've, I've noticed when listening to friends share it, that it seems to kind of give a false sense of intention. Um, Your impact on the world isn't confined to just your good behavior. So you don't get to choose when you're going to be that change. So what I've been trying to tell myself more um, on a day-to-day basis is is just you are the change you want to see in the world. And this kind of reminds me that whether or not I want to be, I'm always going to be rubbing off on people around me in the environment that I live in. And uh, my intentions aren't really is as relevant as my actions. So not to criticize, um, you know, a very well-known and famous quote, but just a small change in wording is something that I've found kind of helped me realize the, the relevance of my actions. Hi, this is Paula Noble, and I live in Kearney, Missouri, calling because I just listened to your podcast on criticism, which was really good, and it made me think of this quote by uh, Teddy Roosevelt that uh, Brene Brown you've probably heard of, likes to talk about about criticism, and it's called The Man in the Arena. And you've probably heard it, but just if you haven't, I'll go ahead and just read it to you. But it goes, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, who faced is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, 
who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Hi, my name is Helen. I'm from Vista, California. Just heard your um, podcast number 38 on my walk, and you were mentioning travel. I want to just point out that there's another organization besides couch surfing that I'd love for you guys to catch, uh, to check out. It's called Servas, S-E-R-V-A-S, and you can find them online. There's a U.S. organization and a global organization, and they've been providing a host traveler meetup service for years. Um, it's a little bit more structured than couch serving, so it tends to be um, – it might uh, be more familiar, more comfortable for people that um, like to ha- like a little bit more vetting when they're traveling and visiting with people. But we've been hosts for over 10 years, and we've had some visitors from some amazing organizations. All right, y'all. That's it for this episode. If you have a question for the minimalists, give us a call. And if you leave here with just one message, we hope it's this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Every little thing that you gotta have Every little thing that you gotta have You gotta reach for and you gotta grab Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it So take your eyes away Or take